Hitler was someone who, uh, if the Jews hadn't been there, then he would have had to invent them because creating a group like the Jews and then blaming them for everything makes the in-group much stronger, much better. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil. The International Criminal Court has sentenced former Ugandan militia leader Dominic Ongwen to 25 years in jail. The news came of the shootings on the island of Utoa. Across Paris, other attackers detonate their suicide vests. Bombs explode throughout London. It was an act of pure evil. Hello and welcome to Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal, a podcast series on perpetrators of mass atrocities. I'm your host, Nikola Kvaatvlieg, and as always I'm joined by Alette Smeulers, professor at the University of Groningen, specialized in perpetrators. And today we're joined by Maria Ioannou, who is an assistant professor, also from the University of Groningen, but soon she will start at the University of Cyprus. She is a social psychologist doing research on prejudice. She's the perfect guest for today's episode, as we'll take a social psychological approach to understanding mass atrocities. More specifically, we'll discuss obedience, conformism, and group identity. Alette, Maria, thank you very much both for joining uh, me today. Um, Maria, we'll start with you. Um, you're a so- social psychologist. What do social psychologists do? Yeah, so first of all, thank you both for having me here. Um, and yes, I'm a social psychologist. I'm indeed uh, researching uh, intergroup relations and prejudice more specifically. Uh, what do social psychologists do? Uh, like um, all psychologists, social psychologists study human behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then social psychologists are more specifically interested in how our behavior is influenced by others or the fact that they belong to groups. And I think we will be talking about both today, how others influence our behavior, but also how our behavior is influenced because we are members of groups. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely try to uh, touch upon both uh, today. Um, And we'll start with uh, one uh, social psychological phenomenon, which is obedience to uh, an authority, which uh, is often associated with mass, mass atrocities. Um, Alette, uh, we're going to you because in one of your works you use the following quote and I quote here are the guys who had gone in and in a moment following orders in a context in which they'd be trained prepared to follow orders they do what they are told and they shouldn't have and they look back a day later and they realize they probably made a big, the biggest mistake of their lives what kind of mistakes are we talking about Alette? Well, this is a quote from uh, Millet, the massacre in Millet that we covered in the uh, very first session, where uh, a small American unit entered uh, a, vi- a village in during the Vietnam War, and believing they were Viet Cong, but then they only saw civilians and they started killing the civilians. Mm-hmm. So the obedience to an order was there very important because they were on a kill and destroy mission, and. Um, Initially, they didn't know what to do in that village, but then um, they got the order to start killing. It was said, you know, what to do with them, so they they started to kill. And I think this quote very clearly shows how strong obedience is a motivating factor. Uh, We all believe, we were all raised and trained to 
obey authorities. Obedience is a very good uh, virtue, generally. And especially in the army, in the military, it's considered uh, crucial mm-hmm. that we obey orders. So in that situation, uh, in being in a war, the soldiers thought, well, we have to obey orders. But in this case, obeying the order meant uh, killing innocent people, which in fact is a war crime, even if you do that when getting an order. Um, but in a war, you can shoot at combatants, but not at civilians. So it was a plain massacre, uh, mass murder that these soldiers committed. And and if we talk about obedience to authority, uh, what exactly constitutes obedience? Like is following the request of an uh, authority figure, is, is that already obedience? Yes, I absolutely think that that is already obedience. So many people talk about obedience as if it's uh, purely blind obedience, that people get an order and do follow up the order just anything, do whatever they're asked to do out of obedience. But I don't think that's that's really true. I think very often we're so trained to respect uh, people in a position of authority. We also have that in order to let our society function. So it's considered an important value. And within the authority, it's also having trust in an authority. And then we follow the authority saying, well, you know what you're doing. It's not on me to decide. I get that order, so um, maybe I don't think it's it's a really good thing, but you are the one who has the responsibility. And maybe I can use another quote that is from actually Hus, the camp commander in Auschwitz. He said... Um, whether the reasons behind the extermination of the Jews was necessary or not was something on which I could not allow myself to form an opinion. And similar quotes I found amongst many, many perpetrators saying, look, it's not me to decide on the extermination, on the genocide, on what to do, on how to protect our country, but it's my role, my job to execute the orders. And because they trust the authority, believe they're right. Mm-hmm. Is uh, obedience really so strong to really explain someone committing a mass atrocity, like in melee, for example? I think it is. that That's the intriguing thing. When, when you had the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem in the early 60s, uh, Eichmann, like many other Nazi perpetrators before him who were tried uh, shortly after the war, kept on saying, I was just following orders. And that was exactly what triggered Stanley Milgram to -hmm. conduct his experiments, saying, well, I don't believe that. People don't just uh, follow orders and commit horrendous crimes. Most people would not do that. And he set up an uh, experiment, the the very famous, and maybe I should also say infamous experiment, Mm -hmm. uh, Stanley Milgram experiment, with the uh, electric shocks to actually prove that people wouldn't just follow orders, but actually he proved the exact opposite. Because what exactly happened in those Milgram experiments, for, for those unaware? Yeah, the, the Milgram experiment was, um, he had an ad- advertisement and he got people to the uh, lab in uh, at Yale University saying, pretending that it was a learning experiment to see how pain would affect learning abilities of people. So a participant came to uh, to the experiment and um, thought it was about learning. Mm-hmm. And 
In the experiment, the idea was that they had to learn memorize word pairs, and with every mistake, there was a, a slight punishment. Now, what the real participant didn't know is that the other person who came in and was presented as being another participant was actually an actor who was part of the experiment, and that was always the learner, and the real participant was always the teacher. Now, the learner had to learn the word pairs, and with every mistake, he was given an electric shock. I need to immediately say that there were no real electric shocks given, mm -hmm. but Milgram pretended that they were given. The participants, however, believed that the shocks were real. And it started off with slight shocks of 15 volt each time the learner made a mistake. And these mistakes were um, pre-recorded, uh, so it was determined that there were a certain number of mistakes. And with each mistake, um, the voltage increased with 15 volt. And it went all the way up to 450 volt, which mm -hmm. is, of course, a very huge and dangerous uh, electric shock. Did everyone know this? I think you most people should know that because electricity that we have in our houses is 230 volt, and, and we know that can be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So... I think most people are very much aware that it's dangerous. And actually, the shock machine also said danger, okay. severe yeah. danger. <laughs> then, so then you should know. Yeah, so it was uh, pretty clear. And then there was an experimenter in the room with the participant. Every time that the participant uh, was doubting whether to continue, he would say, please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. Mm -hmm. And... Um, only if the um, participants, after a while, really said, I want to stop, and four prods were given, then the experiment was terminated. Now, Milgram had expected that only one or two people would go up to the end, so very small percentage. But it turned out that 65% of the people, he had many variations, by the way, but in, in the basic mm -hmm. variation, 65% of the people went all the way up to 450 volt, which was... Amazing and very, very striking, of course. So with that experiment, he proved the exact opposite of what he wanted to prove. Yeah, can, I, can I quickly add something yeah, to what Annette was saying? Um, so um, Milgram, indeed, when he uh, was setting up the experiment, the experiment Alet just described, Milgram thought of it as a baseline experiment. What, what does this mean? He actually expected no one to reach to 330 volts. Mm -hmm. and 400. Sorry, what's that? 400. Uh, even more, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that's, that's very important actually to note. He didn't expect the results that he got. He was actually expecting zero obedience in this specific variation. And then he was thinking, okay, le let's get a baseline and then we start adding factors that may introduce more obedience. The results turn out to be different. Another thing that I want to note is that Milgram really did not believe that in the U.S. of 1960s, that is after Second World War, uh, he didn't believe that he would um, so easily track what he would call Eichmann-like behaviors. Mm -hmm. So he really thought of this basic experiment as a, a basic variant, basically, uh, as, a, um, uh, yeah, as a situation where people would not obey. 
but then he was surprised by his own findings. When he was presenting this experiment to his colleagues in Yale, he was presenting it as uh, the baseline experiment. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting and uh, also also sh- shocking. That no pun intended this time. Um, <laughs> but uh, Maria, does this show that well, at least the vast majority of people um, are susceptible to obedience? Well, as Aleta said. Um, there are good sides to obedience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, growing up, if we do not trust the people who know more than us, it's a pretty chaotic uh, world. Mm-hmm. So, I think there are certain merits in trusting authority. So, we're almost uh, programmed to do so, and I don't think this is necessarily bad. But thinking about Milgram, um, we, I think, also need to think what people are actually obeying to. Mm-hmm. And there what we have is a very artificial context in a, at a university setting. And the experimenter, the person that is telling them, it's okay, you can go on, move on, is uh, a man in a lab coat who looks... Um, intelligible to say the least mm-hmm. and he is telling them it's okay to go on so uh, it's a very strong situation they were put in you know mm-hmm. um, so they are obeying to someone they actually trust and as uh, Alet said before um, the fact that he's someone who seems that he knows what he's doing is taking off a lot of responsibility off their shoulders. So a lot of participants thought that, well, if he's telling me to go on, then it's probably okay. And if anything goes wrong, the responsibility is with him. Mm-hmm. So it's two things. It's trust to the authority and the fact that you're not directly responsible for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's what Milgram also very strongly shows is um, not necessarily only the fact that we uh, tend to obey authority, but in this case, the conflicting norms, not to hurt someone and yet to obey someone. And then you has have these two, two things, which one should you choose? Mm. And then the trust comes in because several of the participants indeed asked the experimenter, is it okay? Can we can we go on? So they try to bring the two conflicting norms in line with, e- with each other on the basis of trust. And that's what you also see in many of the quotes of the, the perpetrators. They say, well, yeah, we cannot judge this. Also a torturer who needs to torture uh, in order to uh, protect national security will say, well, it's not on me to decide that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, for that person, um, that's these conflicting norms. And, and another quote from Millet, which I find very powerful, and it shows this problem, is from Fernando Simpson, who was one of the shooters at Millet. He said, after you got the order to kill, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. Meaning that whatever you do, you it's, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find this trust... Uh, very interesting, um, because if you compare it to to Nazi Germany, for example, where uh, which Milgram is often uh, compared to, um, Eichmann, for example, did he trust Hitler, and did he have any good reasons for trusting him? 
Yeah, I think Eichmann admired Hitler for what he did and therefore thought, okay, this man is giving us new hope. And then, of course, ideology comes in, which we mm-hmm. discussed in the third episode. And so there is a ba- basic uh, basis of trust. There is, okay, this is an important man. I admire this man. There's an ideology. So you start to to believe in that. You feel it's your duty. And then a whole lot of factors come together. And then once you start to behave in that way, you have these very strong psychological mechanisms where you want to rationalize and justify what you do. Mm-hmm. And that is the psychological trap that also Milgram shows. Because I think what was crucial in Milgram is the fact that he went from 15 volt, which is perfectly fine, to 450 volt, which is not fine. But the gradual steps, that's the problem. Because what is the borderline? Is that uh, 150? Is that 165? And this creates this psychological trap because once you start doing that, you continue. And then at some point, um, you need to, to stop. But where do you stop? And when stopping, actually, you, commi- you admit to yourself that you made a mistake, that you went too far already. Because if you stopped at 150, shouldn't you have stopped at 135? And that is the the trap of by going on, you justify your own behavior until that point. But that makes you continuing until 450, which is, of course, hugely problematic. Yeah. To, to perhaps go quickly back to your question of uh, trust and... Uh, I mean, you tried to link it with Nazi Germany... Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what the relationship between Eichmann and Hitler was, um, so I don't know the extent to which Eichmann trusted his leader, um, but Eichmann probably certainly trusted the ideals, the ideology indeed. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, more powerful than, uh, than trusting a single person. And even in Milgram's case, maybe the trust is not towards the man with the coat, the trust is towards science. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thought. I never I never thought of it that way, but uh, you might very well be true. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep on thinking on that after the podcast. Uh, it's, um, it's a bit of a pessimistic um, study, at least the outcome, um, but there is an optimistic part uh, in that not everyone obeyed. Also, depending on the condition they were in, under what circumstances, Maria, did people um, refuse to obey? Yeah. So first of all, I will tell you when a hundred percent of the participants obeyed, mm-hmm. and it was when they had absolutely no contact with uh, the person who was receiving shocks. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't see him. By the way, we are on- only using him here because all the subjects were males yeah so they they couldn't see him they couldn't hear him complaining um so they were executing order uh, while they were in a complete um uh, w- while they were in complete isolation and that says something about executing orders you know uh, you're less likely you're more likely to press a button to kill someone who is very far away than actually get an arm, get, get a, a, a weapon and actually kill them. 
when they are right in front of you. Um, so we do know that uh, when the, 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 the learner, so the student, objects for the first time and they say, please let me out, I don't want to be here, then this is when the people who are giving the shocks are for the first time being shocked <laughs> themselves and um, they are having the first doubts of whether to continue. Mm-hmm. So participants were more uh, were entirely okay with obeying and going full, you know, uh, all the way when they could not hear the participant complaining. Now, obedience started to becoming gradually less uh, the more contact they had with uh, the learner. If they were in the same room, obedience would drop. If they could even hold their hand, obedience would drop a lot. Mm-hmm. But obedience, we also know from Milgram's v- variations, dropped maximally, almost to zero, when there were at least two more people who reacted to the authority, who said, no, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once uh, there are these people who object to authority, uh, then you're more likely to yeah, object as well. Mm-hmm. There is also one experiment where there are two experimenters uh, and they disagree. Yeah. And that's also one where there's zero obedience. And that shows maybe also if you put it more generally, how important it is that you have people who can speak out, can say no, and especially people in a position of authority. Mm-hmm. The Milgram experiment um, is, as you mentioned, a famous experiment, but also infamous experiment. Why is that? Well, initially it was criticized very much, um, questioning whether it was an ethical experiment. Mm-hmm. Um it must be said that back then Milgram fulfilled all ethical requirements, um, but he nevertheless was was attacked. And maybe it's it's Milgram's experiment uh, which helped us de- develop these ethical norms. Um, but a number of years, the arch- archives were opened, and a lot of Milgram's notes came out. Now, what is very unfortunate is uh, a few things came out from there. First of all, that more people than Milgram had admitted were slightly doubting whether the shocks were real. Well, that could have affected the results. Another thing that came out is that um, he had said he was only giving four prods, where especially further on, because he did many variations of the experiment, and especially in the later experiments, he gave uh, many more prods. So it's not just the four. So the pressure was a bit stronger than he admitted. And thirdly, um, the experiment was a bit more unethical than he also initially admitted because he didn't tell uh, the people uh, what the experiment was about and that the um, learner was safe, etc. So there were also more ethical concerns. Now, some people say because of these criticism, we can't rely on Milgram at all. But I don't think that that's true. And there are many scholars who looked into that. And especially Perry wrote a very uh, good book about it. And she calculated exactly which people needed to be disregarded. 
And then she came out that maybe it's not in the baseline experiment, as Maria explained, 65%, but definitely 53 or higher. Mm-hmm. So if we take out all the ones to doubt. So yes, there's criticism, but not we cannot say Milgram should or has to be totally disregarded. And I think the most important thing for Milgram is especially the mechanism that it showed on how obedience worked. Because before that, like Milgram, many people had not expected this outcome. Mm -hmm. And if you compare it with research on perpetrators, then you see this very same mechanism. Do you agree, Maria, that this uh, we can still learn a lot from, from this experiment? Yeah, I'm sure we can learn a lot from Milgram. Uh, another possible, you know, say a skeptic would also say, well, okay, maybe in the US of the 60s, mm-hmm. maybe things were different back then. The experimenters were only males, what's happening with females. Um but there have been replications of the Milgram study that are meeting ethical requirements. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they are finding results very similar to, to Milgram's. Um, and they are also show, showing no real gender differences. So there was a hypothesis that women, for example, would be either more obedient because of their nature. I don't agree with this at all. Or that they would be less obedient because they are more empathetic, but there were no uh, gender differences. Mm-hmm. Milgram actually had one experiment with women. And he ah, came, really? yeah, exactly yeah. the same result as men, uh, because the baseline condition 65%. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that was only one of the many variations. Milgram isn't the only social psychological experiment that has been conducted, which we can use in um, understanding mass atrocities. Um, one interesting experience, at, uh, experiment, at least according to me, is the ash experiment. And for those who, who don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you an explanation, though my guests are usually better at this. Um, the ash experiment is, is, is basically, uh, there are three lines of different lengths, and it's clear that there are different lengths. Lines A, B, and C, we'll name them. Next to it is a fourth line, which has the same length as one of the other lines. And to, to you and me, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious which line that is. And the task of the participant is to identify which line corresponds to uh, uh, the fourth uh, line. It's a really easy task, but many fail because there are other people in the room who give the wrong answer. Those are, again, just as in the Milgram experiment, uh, actors instead of real participants. But uh, the participant is unaware of this. And it shows that they really follow the group. That's not really obedience, is it? Um, how could we group this one? Well, that's conformism, I, I would say. And you have two different reasons uh, for that. One um, could be um, informational um, conformism, where someone thinks, hey, everyone says it's line B, and I see clearly it's A, how I must be wrong and they must be right. Mm-hmm. So some that's maybe a smaller minority who then thinks they're wrong and um, goes along with the group. But there's also a group that really knows the correct answer. They say, no, everyone says B, but it's A, but why should I make waves? Uh, why should I stand out and say something different mm-hmm. than all the others? Because the the real participant was always the fourth or fifth in the row who had to give the answer. So we heard the wrong answer three or four times. 
And these are um, basically the two main explanations. But I don't know if Maria wants to add something to that. Yeah, so maybe um, maybe a concept I can in- introduce here, even though in a sense you refer to it, is the concept of norms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So especially uh, when we are in a situation where we don't exactly know how to behave uh, and we really don't know what the correct answer is and there are people around, the most natural thing we all do is that we observe other people, right? Um, and there are, uh, of co- it's obvious why we do it. You know, if everyone is doing the same thing, that must be the correct thing to do. Uh, and also we are naturally geared to exist in groups. Uh, our survival is better ensured within groups. Mm-hmm. So if there is no obvious reason for why to go against a group, then you go with a group. Um, so in the case of Ash, we have a situation where the answer is so obvious mm-hmm. that Ash, like Milgram, thought that people would not be influenced by the majority's answer. So Ash, like Milgram, when he was designing this study, he thought that, well, in this situation even if the majority of the participants who were, by the way, actors, confederates, Mm -hmm. if they say the obvious wrong answer, there is absolutely no reason for why my participants should give the wrong answer too. Because it's a situation where the answer is obvious. And yet, uh, once uh, the experiment so 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 they did many trials, yeah, and the majority was saying the wrong answer continuously. So at some point, yeah, the naive participants started thinking, what you said, Alet, A, am I doing something wrong here? Or B, ah, let me just give the same answer so that I don't create waves, as you said. But these are two different types of influence. Uh, uh, in my view, uh, the type of influence that is in operation here is normative social influence. I don't really think that anyone started seeing lines having different length, but they probably said that okay, I, I, I don't know, I don't want to, you know, break the majority here. It makes no sense to create waves, so let me just go along. What is necessary for the um, Ash experiment to? work is it like a certain number of people or anything else that's necessary well i yes uh, i think that uh, ash experimented a little bit with the size of the majority and i think he had a cutoff of some sort i think already four or five people are enough to create a majority so if you add more people if you add 10 people uh, it doesn't make a difference so i think you need a crucial a critical mass basically and I think his experiment showed that the critical mass is around four to five people. When it's four to five against one, uh, they already have a clear majority status in the eyes of the one person. Mm-hmm. And does it matter who those people are? Uh, yes. Uh, so if they are people... Um, I don't want to say people you trust, but people who look like you, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're much more likely to, if not trust them, to not be willing to break uh, the majority's uh, yeah norm. Let's say, you know, I know Ash's uh, experiments, but I don't know every single uh, replication of this experiment and so on. But I would suspect that uh, if the majority consisted of people who did not look like you. Mm-hmm. then obedience may have... Uh, obedience is probably going to be less. Conformity, you mean, not obedience. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, conformity. Yeah, conforming to the majority's opinion, let's say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what plays a role is the, the need to belong very strongly. Yeah. yeah. And that explains, I guess, the, the difference you just pointed out. If people look like you, we're, we're social beings we want to belong we want to be part of of others so that makes sense if they look like you 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 want to be part of that but if they look very different very different kind of people then it's easier to say well i don't want to belong to them anyway and i don't mind to be different well it depends on what the difference is i was thinking you know because if for example you're a student and the majority uh of the majority uh, composes of um, teachers, for example, then maybe conformity will be more, yeah. you know, will be higher, will be higher. Um, well, given that uh, this specific student respects, uh, you know, the authority of teachers and so on. Uh, so it also depends on what your relationship is with these people who are similar or different from you. How can this experiment help us explain, like an experiment with some simple lines, how can it help explain mass atrocities? It very well explains a certain dynamic in a, in a group and also that a lot of people stay quiet, go, go along with the majority. Well, in this case, they explicit, explicitly had to say something, but in, in real life, you sometimes don't even need to do that, but just stay silent, not saying anything because it would divert from the norm. That that would explain conformity within a group, and you don't want to stand out. That's also very clear what you can see in mass atrocities. And I think there will be other mechanisms at play as well, but you think it also explains how a group can become more extreme than the members of the group individually are. Mm -hmm. Because... If the group starts to doing more and more extreme things, for instance, by one person who's slightly more extreme than the others, but no one objects, then everyone stays quiet thinking that they're the only one who's having objections. Whereas in reality, it might be the majority who's having objections. But if no one speaks out, then everyone thinks, okay, this is the norm, let's now continue. And that's what you do see in groups. There's this example also during the the Vietnam War with Tiger Force, that was an elite unit that was uh, meant to kill uh, Viet Cong behind the lines. And there was one guy in that group who was quite extreme. He was also a very courageous fighter. So people looked up to him, was an ideal role model. But at some point he started to kill civilians as well. And other members in the group uh, followed him. And I think there you see the same mechanism that no one dared to show that they had a different opinion, that they had another opinion. So everyone thought, oh, everyone is okay with it. Why should I stand out? 
And especially in a war, groups are extremely important because you rely on a group for your own safety. So I think, I don't know if you agree or want to add something, but I think that helps explain those uh, mechanisms. If I were to add something uh, to what Alette has already said, when do mass atrocities happen in situations of war, uh, right? Um, I suppose most of the times. Um, and one would expect that uh, war is um, not an uncertain situation. You, especially if you're a soldier, you know how you need to behave, right? Um, and maybe it's useful here to talk about another kind of norms, which are called injunctive norms. And it's how you ought to behave in a certain situation. So if your general tells you to shoot, you shoot. However, it does happen, I think, in War Two, where there are either conflicting orders or you're in a situation where it's not quite clear what you ought to do. Uh, and in this case, I think this is where Ash becomes relevant then. In this case, you refer to your peers, uh, you know, your comrades, to see what they are doing. And if they are shooting, you're more likely to shoot because then you think it's the correct thing to do. And then we have a strong in-group norm as well in the sense that your peers are really your group, you know. You really don't want to break that uh, connection. Um, but I, I think it can also explain why we are also staying silent, uh, the bystander effect, you know. If you see no one reacting, then you think probably they are not reacting or they are staying quiet because of a good reason. Mm-hmm. Because the bystander effect is... It's when you don't take action. It's when you don't take action, yeah. even though you should. Even though you should. Mm-hmm. E- even though you you really think that you should, you know. There, there is a clear action to be taken. But if you're observing others not taking action, then a part of you thinks that, well they are probably not taking action for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's especially the more others there are there, the more likely you will not act. Yeah. So, yeah. for instance, if, if someone is drowning and you're the only one who sees it, then you will act. But if a lot of people stand and watch someone drowning, you come by and you think, oh, the per- the person is drowning but no one else responds so it might be something different i might be mistaken this is not really someone who needs help so i think the bystander effect is is especially also the bigger the group the more likely you're not going to act Mm -hmm. yeah so why is this so important to have a group identity well because uh First of all, we naturally belong to groups. Uh, As I said before, belonging to groups is evolutionarily meaningful. Uh, It's good for our survival. Uh, But another reason, another psychological reason, is that we derive part of our pride and self-esteem from groups. Mm -hmm. Which also means then that we want to belong to groups that um, are good, Mm -hmm. that are doing well. And if this is uh, not the case, it's um, we don't we don't feel good, and we try every way possible to um, well either exit groups we don't like, or if we cannot exit them, then um, yeah, uh, lift a little bit the status of our group. 
mm-hmm. and every way we like I- is that where where um, social identity ties in with explaining mass atrocities it, it's often said that you have in groups and out groups but it starts to become a problem and uh, might lead to violence if it's politicized so uh, what was happening in nazi germany or in germany before nazism uh, germany was not doing very well financially so that's uh, you know our group is not doing very well that's not cool we don't like it it affects our self-esteem um so uh, a, a fix sometimes an easy fix is to say, well, we're not doing very well, but there is someone to blame for that. Mm -hmm. So you find a scapegoat, as we would call it. It's an easy way to elevate, once again, groups' esteem by saying, well, we are not doing well because of other people, because of other groups. I can imagine how that leads to some prejudice towards other groups, because they are the problems, uh, uh, or they are the reasons for our problems. Prejudice doesn't necessarily lead to violence as it did in uh, Nazi Germany. What is necessary for prejudice to turn into violence? So prejudice is about um, devaluing either a group or a member of the group because they, they belong to that group. And this devaluation happens typically to the benefit of one scene group, right? Um, now, there are three components of prejudice. One is uh, what we call the affective component. So that's how we feel towards another group. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have warm or cold feelings towards the group. The second component is uh, stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ge- stereotypes as are these very generalized statements, like all out-group members are X, typically a negative thing if we're talking about negative stereotypes. So all migrants are illegal, all migrants are here to steal, you know, our jobs and stuff like that. Uh, So that's a cognitive part. And um, the third part is the behavioral part. Uh, And it's about one acting on one's emotions and cognitions. Mm -hmm. So affect and stereotypes. And uh, the behavior can be um, can extend from uh, not wanting to hang out with uh, outgroup members, so keeping your distance, or really uh, being physically violent against them. So behavior, negative behavior, you know, can take many forms. Now, typically, uh, people uh, may hold negative attitudes may endorse negative stereotypes but it's very rare to perform negative behavior in modern times it's not so cool let's say to be very openly bigoted Uh, but there are certain situations uh, where behavior flows naturally from these attitudes and mass atrocities are one such situation Mm-hmm. I can imagine that if I have uh, an, an uh, in-group and there is someone else, for example, uh, I, I play tennis, uh, and there is another team that, that wins, that we have all kinds of stereotypes like, oh, they might be better at tennis, but they, they are all uh, very unkind people. Mm-hmm. Um, that still doesn't lead me to really pursue any violence. No, exactly, yeah. So it takes certain conditions. Mm-hmm. 
There, there has been research by Barbara Harf uh, identifying conditions when uh, genocides and politicides happen. So that means when you want to destroy in whole or part a, a certain group. And that happens uh, only when there are difficult life conditions. Mm-hmm. So with your tennis team, when you have that in the Netherlands right now, we're not living under very difficult life conditions. But in a period uh, during a war or after a war or economic depression or any kind of things that make life very difficult, if there's poverty, if there's hunger, those are the situations when you start to look for who to blame. And that is also the moments when these groups are politicized, what we mentioned before, and when there is an exclusionary ideology. And these exclusionary ideologies can then lead to first creating uh, the picture of the other, the othering, Mm -hmm. then uh, blaming them, then demonizing them. You saw that very clearly in Nazi Germany, all the propaganda on the Jews as what they were doing was was horrible and totally untrue. So, and from demonization, you go to dehumanization. Mm -hmm. And that makes it, indeed, once you're there, under those circumstances, then it's much easier to kill people because you don't see them as people anymore. And what you said, it, it makes it much easier. You don't treat them as human beings anymore and that literally happened for instance to the Jews who were picked up in their houses but then were put on uh, in cattle cars where they didn't could couldn't even sit where they had no uh, nothing to eat nothing to drink no possibility to go to the bathroom and then they were had to go on the train for several days so the moment they got out of the trains, they didn't really look like humans anymore because they were smelling, they were dirty, they were uh, hungry, uh, thirsty, uh, hadn't slept. So they looked horrible at their worst, which made it also easier to kill them. So it's not just the um, idea of dehumanizing them, but literally letting them go through such a behavior uh, or, or horrible procedure that makes them feel that they're no longer human. And that's also what Primo Leva said in his uh, well-known poem, If is this a man describing himself at a concentration camp and the others? So it's the way you treat them and the way you see them and describe them, and that makes yeah, it much easier. I, I like how you gave the full picture, Aled. Indeed, it starts with very dire circumstances when... Uh, one's group is in hunger, is uh, really suffering and so on, then as we said before, one common thing to do, especially with certain political ideologies, is to find a scapegoat. And then the rest the rest follows. Yeah, dehumanization is pretty much the end of the chain. And I think you explained it very well before. Yeah. Just to uh, con- continue with this example, um, why was it necessary to kill all the Jews? What benefits did this have apart from having this scapegoat? Well, very often an in-group can define itself by creating an out-group who is a lesser inferior group. Um, And we already mentioned they're um, made into a scapegoat, but it's also you see yourself in everything as being superior to that other group. And there's this this quote, which um, might not really be from Hitler, but it's in a book by uh, Hermann Rauschning, 
who had seen Hitler operate and realized how he was thinking. So um, he had this, uh, he said, well, Hitler was someone who, uh, if the Jews hadn't been there, then he would have had to invent them because creating a group like the Jews and then blaming them for everything makes the in-group much stronger, much better. Well, ap apart from that, I want to add perhaps to what you are just saying, uh, Alet, um, and also in response to your question, Nicola, about the the, the function of a scapegoat, what, the usefulness. Yeah. Mm. So apart from making the in-group look better, um, I think it's also such a gullible explanation. You know, um, it's... Um, serves people with what they want to hear and what they can understand very easily. You know, it's an easy story to sell, you know, uh, especially when the reality is so much more complex. And I want to go back to the economic crisis in the European Union. Mm -hmm. um, the roots of the economic crisis are to be found at the political system. Uh, however, a very easy uh, explanation was, well, uh, the economic crisis is here and there are some people who exacerbate it, who are these people, migrants, so we should close our borders to migrants because they are exacerbating this situation. Now, uh, by... Um, by creating a scapegoat out of migrants, you're giving people a very easy explanation for many of the wrongdoings that are happening in your own country. And people like easy explanations. And also, if you have a scapegoat, if you have a real enemy, then you're more likely to say, well, we really need to defend ourselves now. Mm -hmm. And then you have your just cause, yeah? Yeah, and you create hope for something better because you have exactly. an easy solution and something better. And that is what most mass atrocities are committed by people who want to create a better world. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very sad, but mm -hmm. that's the reality. And those mass atrocities include uh, killing innocent people um, that don't belong to the in-group. How can we make sure that we uh, reverse the process of dehumanizing those people? Being closer to them, understanding them. Empathy is very important, um, but also critical reflection on, on the easy answers. Is this really the answer? Because yes, easy answers are very popular, but are they the right answers? So I think to reverse this critical reflection is important. Um, living with other groups, trying to understand other groups, the dialogues are very important. I don't know if there's anything yeah. you like to add, but... Well, Alet mentioned before that sequence, you know, so we live in dire circumstances, then, you know, we create a scapegoat, a gullible explanation, dehumanizing, uh, dehumanize them a little bit, and then off we go. Well, if we reverse that now, um, what can we change? We cannot change dire circumstances. You know, things happen, like COVID happens, mm -hmm. uh, earthquakes happen. It's very hard to change this, right? But you, what you can change is the response to those mm -hmm. uh, situations. Uh, now, I think we should be very suspicious of very simple explanations to uh, 
um, the poor condition of one's nation, for example. So if we find our in-group to be suffering, um, having a very easy scapegoat, for me, it's a very easy explanation. And I think we should start being suspicious of these easy explanations. But that, coupled with what you said, Alet, um, empathy uh, can, I think, go well together. But what what is empathy in this context? Uh, if we go back to uh, my migrants example, um, if you don't know any migrant personally, and then someone is presenting them to you as a scapegoat, then you're much more likely to go along with that explanation and to also dehumanize and so on and so forth. But if you know at least a couple of migrants and you see that, uh, well, they are actually hardworking people, they didn't come here to steal my job, my money and so on, then I think you will be more likely to not buy the easy explanation. But also, even if you do buy that explanation, then to not fully dehumanize them. So for me, it's two things. Um, uh, buffer ourselves against easy explanations. Uh, and two, really meet those people who are potential others. Mm -hmm. To understand that they are actually, well, at the very least, humans. Yes, and to look at common factors also. That is because you might make groups uh, based on certain factors, but there might be other common factors. And we also have got international human rights, so never uh, de deny someone his or her human rights. Yeah. And that is also the part that everyone is equal. And I think that the whole exclusionary ideologies are based that we're not equal. All right, very quickly, last question. We've uh, talked about obedience, conformism, and um, in-group favoritism. Uh, they can lead to very negative things, but are those also very negative processes within within us humans? I, I think that's a very good question. Uh, because the way uh, we've been talking about it, uh, it sounds very negative, yeah? That all of these things are negative things. But as I said in the beginning of the podcast of our conversation, I, I don't necessarily think that all these three things are negative. There are very good reasons to obey authority, very good reasons for why to conform to, to other people, and very good reasons for why our groups matter to us. It's actually quite healthy to have strong group memberships. Uh, but it also happens, and such is human nature, I suppose, that there is also a negative side to it. So it's very important to be aware of how the, these otherwise positive things, in my opinion, uh, start, um, start to become negative towards us and other people. I would totally agree. There's a lot of positive aspects to it, but when you realize we're going in the wrong direction, you get illegal orders, for instance, then you need to stand up and disobey. Or if the group starts to do something, bully someone, then you need to stand up and say, hey, stop. So being aware of these processes, the positive aspects, but also the dangers, and then stop it, I think that will be ideal if we all learn that and do that. Maria Elet, thank you very much for sharing your expertise today. And for everyone who's listening, thank you very much for doing so. 
we very much hope to see you back next week. <laughs>